Good morning. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see some familiar faces sprinkled around from all sorts of different places, uh, north, west, south, east. It's very good to see you. <laughs> and um, we also uh, rejoice this morning. Some of you have been praying uh, over the last few days for Beth and Pickett as she was induced on Friday. Well, we're able to I'll let you know that Rosanna Amy Pickett was born on Friday evening, and she was five pounds nine ounces, and we praise God with Tom and Bethan and with Morris and Annette for Rosanna's safe arrival, and thank you for your prayers. We do hope to finish our time of worship this morning by singing together outside. Um, I'm not seeing too many of the song sheets I put out, but I think there are some somewhere, there's a few there. Uh, the rain held off just the early service, so we're hoping it'll hold off again, and we'll go through these doors and sing round the back. And then we are meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. to continue looking at Matthew's Gospel. I hope that you can join us for that. And then in the week, we have our loss and grief group meeting here at the church at 10 a.m. Uh, everyone's welcome for that. You don't have to have been before. And then on uh, Thursday, this time an online meeting, our time of prayer is Thursday, 7.45, and you're very welcome to join us. There will be an email circulating about that. And then something to put in your diaries for a few weeks ahead. Our church AGM, which was uh, put on hold from March of a year ago, is now scheduled for Thursday, June the 24th at 730 uh, and ahead of that, there is a, a notice on the board at the back with information that would be useful to you. There are going to be deacons' re-elections. We're not putting any new deacons forward for election, but some of the ones who are currently deacons are due to be re-elected, and that involves voting. So there will be forms available on June the 6th for that. But just to give you advance notice, please put June 24th in your diary if you can. I think that's all that I need to mention by way of uh, information for you. We're going to begin our time of worship by reminding one another and reminding ourselves of the truths that we take our stand on as Christians. We're going to do that by saying together a summary of the faith that the church has used from its earliest days. We're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin with these words. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. Truths we can truly take our stand on and build our life on. The truth that you are God the Father Almighty, the maker and sustainer of all things. We thank you for the truth about your son, Jesus, that he has been crucified and is risen again, that his death brings forgiveness for our sins and life everlasting for all who trust in him. We thank you for the truth about your Holy Spirit, that he is with us, showing us the truth about Jesus enabling us to grow in obedience to your word, enabling us to persevere to the end. And we thank you that all these realities come to us as the overflow of your love and grace. So we lift up our eyes to you this morning, the one who loves us and has freed us from our sin. We turn our hearts to you again. We put our hope in you again. We ask you to speak to us again through your written word. Give us new joy in your great salvation. Our good and gracious King. Amen.
We've just heard a song about the promise of acceptance that we have in Jesus, and we're going to have a reading now from the New Testament that tells us how that promise of acceptance came about. We're going to read from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 26. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For you have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Our next song expresses what all of this means for those who have faith in Jesus. It means we can approach God's throne with confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in Jesus. Boldly I approach your throne. I grace alone somehow 
this point, our Sunday school are going to be moving next door. It's a wonderful life. Would you agree? Wonder is a sense of surprised excitement. Would you say your life is filled with wonder? Well, if we are Christians, we have every reason to live a life filled with wonder. And I think our passage this morning can help us with that. Because as we listen to Moses, as he's preaching to the Israelites on the banks of the Jordan River, Moses is going to point out how wonderful it is that God's people even exist at all. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And we're going to read from chapter 9, verse 1 through to chapter 10, verse 11. It is all one section. And as we read this, we're going to see Moses actually looking forward. He's preparing the people for the future. But he does it by taking them back to a significant moment in their past. It's a moment 40 years before this, just after the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb. So let's read from chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan, to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you, with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall, Anakites, you know about them, and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you, and you will drive them out and annihilate them quickly as the Lord has promised you. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you were going in to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. For you are a stiff-necked people. Remember this and never forget how you aroused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. 
From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made an idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then, once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so arousing his anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time, I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, go up. And take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people. Your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, He brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out. 
by your great power and your outstretched arm. At that time, the Lord said to me, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up to me on the mountain. Also, make a wooden ark. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you were to put them in the ark. So I made the ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I went up in the mountain with the two tablets in my hands. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before. The Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark I had made as the Lord commanded me. And they are there now. The Israelites traveled from the wells of Ben-Ajakan to Mozorah. There Aaron died and was buried. And Eleazar, his son, succeeded him as priest. From there, they traveled to Gudgada and on to Jotbatha, a land with streams of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their fellow Israelites. The Lord is their inheritance, as the Lord your God told them. Now I had stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, as I did the first time. And the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. This is God's word. And it's a passage that I hope will leave us enjoying the wonder of belonging to God's people. But if we're going to do that, we first have to strip away the myth of my righteousness. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, Moses speaks about what's ahead. The Israelites will cross the Jordan and they will possess the land. Because the Lord himself will go ahead of them. He will deal with the big scary people and the tall city walls in Canaan. Maybe it's worth noting that at the end of verse 3, Moses says that will happen quickly. I point that out because some of you may remember that back in chapter 7, he said it would happen little by little. So which is it? Has the Lord forgotten what he said through Moses in chapter 7? Not at all. The two statements are talking about two separate stages of the conquest. The initial conquest will happen quickly. That's borne out in the book of Joshua, which records how the land of Canaan basically fell into Israel's lap. Immediately after they crossed the Jordan, they won some significant victories, which meant they controlled the key areas of the land. At that point, Canaan was essentially theirs. But as the book of Judges goes on to show, the work of completing the conquest was a long-term project. Even though Israel controlled the land, 
The work of dealing with the remaining resistance was work that went on little by little, just as God said. In any case, the Lord is going to give the Israelites victory, and here, in advance of that, Moses wants to talk about the way they will be tempted to react to that victory. You can see in verse 4, the reaction they will be tempted to have. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. In one sense, that is a natural reaction. The Lord is being so good to us. He's blessing us by defeating our enemies, giving us this amazing place of prosperity. Surely we must have earned this. It must be a reward for how great we are. We must deserve God's favor. The word righteousness means in the right. And the Israelites will be tempted to think that God's work for them and his goodness to them have come about because they're virtuous and upright and, well, worthy. Why else would God be so good to them? It must be because they're worthy of his goodness. That's what Israel would be tempted to think. And there are two ways this thinking can impact us as well. We could call them the obvious and the less obvious ways. The obvious way is when someone is just so impressed with themselves, they can't fathom why God wouldn't be good to them. It could be you're like that this morning. You can produce a list as long as your arm of all the good things about you and the good things you've done. And it's obvious that God would feel the same way. Or he will do when he takes a look at your CV of righteousness. Of course, you try to keep a humble exterior and not brag about yourself too much. But you have no doubt about your righteousness. Of course, whatever blessing God has should be coming your way. But there's also a less obvious way this idea of my righteousness can impact us. And it's more likely to affect those of us who claim to be Christians. Because we know the stuff about grace and mercy. We know the teaching that God's blessings come as gifts to us. But when we don't get what we want from God... Then we show our true colors by getting angry with him or disappointed with him. Why do we get angry or disappointed? Because we believe we deserve to get what we want. We too have a CV of righteousness. And we'd never be so bold as to shove it in God's face but we'd certainly expected that he would take note of it and that he would act accordingly. Whenever deep down we have a belief in our own righteousness, then God's goodness to us is just taken for granted. We deserve it. 
And anything that seems like a lack of goodness to us gets us pretty depressed and resentful. Because didn't we deserve better from God? If you and I want to test this, we can just consider the question, is my life characterized by thankfulness? Do my words and my attitudes tend to have a thankful flavor to them? Or do I have to admit that the predominant flavor of my words and my actions is actually disappointment? If it is, that's probably because deep down I'm convinced of my righteousness. I feel I'm worthy of his blessing and I feel he hasn't treated me as my worthiness deserves. And so I really don't have much sense that my life as one of God's people is wonderful. My righteousness is an idea that can take hold in all our hearts. But the Bible says it is a myth. It's a popular idea, but it's pure fiction. It's not reality. And here on the banks of the Jordan River, Moses points the Israelites to their own history to show them reality. They may be convinced of their own righteousness, but the reality is they're a stiff-necked people deserving destruction. The phrase stiff-necked people is actually God's description, as we'll see. But Moses uses it in verse 6. After pointing out that one of the main reasons for the conquest of Canaan is the Canaanites' wickedness, in verse 6, Moses focuses on the Israelites' main attribute. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. When someone is stiff-necked, they're stubborn. Apparently, the idea originally comes from farming, when an ox refused to put its neck in the harness of the plow. It was being stiff-necked. And applied to humans, it describes a refusal to turn the head to listen and to bow the head in submission. It's turning the head away from instruction and holding it high and proud instead. And Moses says to Israel, what actually characterizes you is not righteousness at all. Your main characteristic is stubborn pride and unwillingness to listen. And then Moses points to the evidence of this in verse 7. Remember this. And never forget how you roused the anger of the Lord your God in the wilderness. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Israel's rebellion has been a long-term thing. It hasn't just showed itself once. It's been there all through their journey. Later down in verse 24, 
Moses will say to the people, you've been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. And he will give examples to prove it. But here, Moses is going to focus on just one rebellious event. It happened just after the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Horeb. Back in chapter 5, we learned that after God proclaimed the Ten Commandments in a loud voice from out of the fire on the mountain, when that happened, the people were so terrified, they begged Moses to go up the mountain by himself. And then come back and report to them what God had said. And here, Moses picks up the story at the point where he's up the mountain. He says he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the two stone tablets. Two identical copies of the Ten Commandments. And it's important to remember, the people down below have already been given the Ten Commandments. They don't have the stone tablets yet, but they have heard the commandments proclaimed by God himself. And it turns out while Moses was away, the people decided to jump right in and break the second commandment, which says, do not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. It's a clear and straightforward command. It's pretty hard to misunderstand it. And yet Moses says in verse 11, The Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. It's no wonder God calls the people stiff-necked. No sooner had they heard the command not to make idols and agreed to obey the command than they quickly turned aside from God's instruction and made an idol. And when Moses arrives back in the camp, he shows them in no uncertain terms what that means. It means the covenant between them and God is broken. The relationship is shattered. Moses illustrates that by smashing the tablets in front of them. It's the equivalent of taking a marriage certificate and ripping it up. The relationship has been shattered by Israel's actions. They have taken another lover in place of the Lord their God. And they've done it before the ink was even dry on the wedding certificate. Or in this case, before the dust had been blown off the freshly inscribed stone tablets. And so as God himself says in verse 14, he would be perfectly justified in destroying the people. Blotting out their name from under heaven. Of course, you and I might not be so sure about that. 
We might think this is a bit of an overreaction from God, a bit harsh. But as one writer points out, if that is our reaction, it simply shows that God hates sin and we do not. That's why we react with distaste to God's wrath and decide it's actually a bit harsh and cruel on the sinner. But the Bible has a very different view. The Bible has such a high view of God's worthiness that what the Bible finds shocking is not God's willingness to punish sin. The Bible is shocked when God pauses and holds back punishment. As far as the Bible is concerned, it's simply a given that defiance of this holy God deserves the strongest possible punishment. The wonder is when God holds back his punishment. And so if you and I are ever going to make sense of the Bible, and if we're ever going to know the God presented to us in the Bible, we have to learn to share the Bible's perspective on sin. It deserves destruction. And if we begin to see this, we'll be able to make sense of the following statements from the New Testament. First, from Romans chapter 3, and we read this earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It wasn't just those ancient Israelites who were stiff-necked, it's everybody, including you and me. We've all turned our head away from his instruction. We've all decided to do our own thing instead. And the wages of that sin is death. If we see things from the Bible's perspective, that second statement just follows naturally from the first one. Of course sin deserves death. And since we've all sinned, we all deserve death. The first step out of our stiff-necked path to destruction is to acknowledge that reality. Contrary to the popular myth of our own righteousness, in fact, the Bible says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Are you willing to admit that? Are you willing to let go of the myth of your righteousness? And admit that actually you're in the wrong before God and you deserve destruction. And yet here in our passage, remarkably, destruction does not come. And that is remarkable considering what has happened. The final section of the passage presents us with the wonder of God's mercy. 
Verses 18 to 24 of chapter 9 explain that after Moses smashed the stone tablets, he went back up the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights. And then verses 25 to 29 tell us what went on during that time. But before we look at that, remember for a moment what we've already seen about Moses' relationship with the Lord. It's a unique relationship. Yes, Moses is just a man, but he's a man who enjoyed unparalleled closeness and access to God. That's evident simply from the fact that God invited Moses up the mountain into his fiery presence. And it gets even more amazing if you look back up in chapter 9 at verse 14. Look again at what God says to Moses when he's up the mountain the first time. The Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. God says, let me alone so that I may destroy them. Do you hear what God is saying? You, Moses, can prevent me destroying them. Is there any other way to understand that statement from God? If you step out of the way, Moses, if you let me alone, I will destroy them. But if you don't let me alone, I won't destroy them. And equally remarkable is that God then offers to begin again with Moses after he's destroyed the Israelites to make Moses the father of a new nation. What are we supposed to make of that? Not just that offer, but the way God speaks to Moses like he's in collaboration with him. Like he and Moses are a team. Well, the fact is, God has been preparing Moses for this role since birth, really. If you know the start of the book of Exodus, it tells us that Pharaoh tried to subdue the Israelites by having all their baby boys killed. But Moses' mother made him a little floating basket, and she set him on the river Nile, where Moses was found and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. So from birth, Moses was set apart for a very special life. He was to be God's mediator. First, he would mediate between the people of his birth, the Israelites, and the people of his adoptive mother, the Egyptians. And then after the exodus from Egypt, Moses became the mediator between God and his people. So once we understand that God himself set Moses apart for this role of mediator, then we can begin to understand what's going on in verse 14. This is not a case of an out-of-control God trying to silence this man who might speak restraint to him. Not at all. 
This is the perfectly holy God who rightly hates sin. And yet he turns to this man, Moses, this mediator whom God himself had prepared from birth, and God invites Moses to mediate. Are you going to let me alone, Moses? Do you want me to destroy the people and start over with you? Or do you love these people enough to intercede for them and turn away my anger at their sin? The God of the Bible is the God whose anger burns against sin. And he's the God who provides his own mediator to turn away his anger. That's what we see in verses 25 to 29, where God receives his mediator. After smashing the stone tablets, Moses treks back up the mountain, and he says in verse 25, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. But they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Moses does not have a hard job here. What I mean is, the Lord's love for the Israelites is so evident, his deep commitment to them is so beyond doubt, it's been shown so clearly in the exodus from Egypt, and before that in God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's commitment to the people is unquestionable. All Moses has to do is point to it. And of course, God will overlook their stubbornness, wickedness, and sin. As Moses asks him to do in verse 27. A better translation might be, do not turn towards their sin. Moses is not asking God to pretend their sin isn't there. He's not trying to do a whitewash job, nor is he trying to convince God they're righteous after all. He's asking God not to punish them as their sins deserve. God prepared Moses to intercede for his people, and when Moses does intercede, God accepts his intercession. That becomes clear in chapter 10, verses 1 to 11 where God renews his covenant. And as it's presented to us in these verses, there are three aspects to that renewal. First, there's a new set of stone tablets. Second, there's a new box to store them in, the Ark of the Covenant. 
The ark and the tablets are mentioned in verses 1 to 5. And then third, God appoints what we could call custodians of the covenant. That's the Levitical priesthood mentioned in verses 6 to 9. Those three things provided by God, they signal that the relationship with his people is still alive. He has not destroyed his people and he is not going to abandon them either. Look down to chapter 10, verse 10. Moses says, Now I had stayed in the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. God is faithful to his promises. He is not going to start over. He will give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants as he promised generations before this. And in Canaan, the way for God's people to enjoy the wonder of his love and faithfulness is to keep turning away from the myth of their own righteousness. Remembering his mercy shown at Horeb. They move forward as a people blessed with undeserved love poured out on them by their merciful God. And if you and I are going to enjoy the wonder of God's love and faithfulness, we have to let go of the myth of our own righteousness. So long as we hold on to that myth at any level, we will believe deep down that we just deserve God's love and faithfulness. Why wouldn't he bless us? And if we think he's ever missed a chance to bless us, then we'll mope around feeling hard done by. The way to appreciate how wonderful our life really is, is to see the reality that we, like Israel, are a stiff-necked people deserving destruction. We have a lifetime's worth of stubbornness, wickedness, and sin behind us. And yet, in Christ, God has done much more for us than he did for Israel through Moses. We've seen how from birth, Moses was set apart to be the mediator for Israel. And yet, as great a work as Moses did, he couldn't remove the people's sin. He could only ask God to overlook their sin. That's remarkable that God agreed to do that. But Jesus Christ was set apart by his Father as the mediator who would remove our sin. He did that when he took it on himself and was punished for it on the cross. And now the New Testament tells us, as the risen Jesus intercedes with his Father, he is able to intercede on the basis of his own sacrifice on the cross. 
Jesus reminds the Father that he, the Son, has already paid the penalty of our sin. It's done with and it's gone. If we're Christians, we do have a righteousness. It's not our own. It's God's gift to us through Jesus. And that's why the book of Hebrews says this. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And just as he was with Moses in the Old Testament, our God is more than willing to accept Jesus' intercession. God's arm doesn't need to be twisted. His love has already been displayed beyond all doubt. For he sent his son to die on the cross. He appointed his son to be our mediator. We have a God who is just as willing to forgive as his son is to plead for our forgiveness. So this morning and in the days ahead, let's let go of the myth of our own righteousness. Not only is it untrue, but holding on to it stops us seeing the wonder of God's mercy. So let's admit the truth about ourselves. And as we do, let's begin to truly enjoy God's undeserved love and care. And also the eternal future of blessing he has prepared for us. Those are beautiful things that we have not earned and never could earn. But God has poured them out on us through his son Jesus. It's a great thing to be able to respond to God's word. And the two songs that we're going to sing are definitely songs of wonder in response to what God has done. We're going to sing before the throne of God above and then and can it be. So assuming that it's not raining, we're going to leave through these doors. There are some song sheets. I'm not sure where the others have gone, but maybe you could share one between couples and we'll follow the musicians outside.